Percy Jackson. I mean, I love Percy Jackson, but like... Anybody that wasn't using sex toys to cheat in chess. I would have been scandalized if I had read that as a teenager. Welcome to Literary Connections. We're friends who started a podcast because we live on opposite sides of the world, and we're using books to stay connected. I'm Melissa Hansen, more of a pawn than a queen in San Francisco. And I'm James Earl in Milan, Italy, but using the Sicilian defense. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> and this month, we're reading Check and Mate by Allie Hazelwood, which you might have been able to see is about chess. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. James yeah. and I clearly know a lot about chess, as you can tell from our intros. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as yeah. always, um, we dig deep into the book, and so there are going to be a lot of spoilers. So if you care about that, please go and read the book and then come back to this. Um, but if you don't care, just listen to the quick summary, and then we will start discussing. And it is very fast. It's a very, very fast read. Very fast. Okay, is it my turn to create the summary? I think it is, yeah. Ooh, okay. All right, summary starts in three Two, one. Okay, we meet Mallory Greenleaf. She just graduated from high school and she's an auto mechanic with a dark past. Her best friend asks her to participate in a charity chess tournament and Mallory does not want to participate because chess ruined her life. But she agrees to do it because it's for a good charity. It's not for gluten sensitivity. It's for Doctors Without Borders. So she participates. And what? The number one guy in the entire world, Nolan Sawyer, is there? He's called the King Killer and she crushes him. After that, she gets an amazing scholarship to learn how to play chess and become the number one chess person in the world. She and Nolan get more entangled, but of course do not actually play each other directly up until the world championships. Um, And during that entire process, she has to consider all the sexism in chess and then also her feelings for Nolan. And what is she going to do? Is she going to choose love? Is she going to choose chess? Is she going to choose both? Also, we find out how chess ruined her life. That's good. That's really good. There's not much to fill in there. So we do find out how chess ruins her life at the very end of the book, um, which is her dad was having an affair with all these different women who worked in the chess field. And Mallory blames herself because she tells her mom, like, hey, dad's stepping out on you. The mom kicks the dad out. The dad goes out and gets drunk, and then he kills himself in a DUI. And the other woman shows up as a chess moderator of some sort a referee because i know a lot about chess so yeah. <laughs> i'm sure i'm sure it's called a referee yeah yeah definitely and so she blames herself because if her dad had still been alive her mother would have had insurance for her medical condition and mm-hmm. they would have had money to pay the mortgage yeah. and so that's why she can't allow herself to be happy and she has to always be taking martyr care of herself martyr herself and be a mechanic yeah 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 and slightly estranging herself from her sisters as she's like becoming more of a parent than a sister yeah this is one of those books that just has a beautiful like first 10 pages that give you so much exposition right away there's like the conversation with her and her best friend easton where Easton says, like, but you got into every college you wanted to, and yet you're not going to college, and you're really good at math, and and it's like, just lays out a whole bunch of exposition right away. It lays out all the exposition, but also the, but why? It's because chess ruined my life, and you're not going to find that out for 200 pages, but everything else yeah. has been exposed. Yeah, It's yeah. like a pilot of a, tele- of a procedural television show. Yeah, yeah, the first 10 pages were like a, a Christmas rom-com on Netflix. The, isn't that your ex-boyfriend who you wanted to start a bakery with? And yeah. Which of the people are you dating? These two people that I will now list. Yeah. Yeah. Is it the? And then they just rattle off. 
<laughs> these inauthentic conversations. Okay, I'm making it sound like I didn't like the book. I really no. like the book. But yeah. those first 10 pages were like the classic exposition yeah. thing that rom-coms do. Yeah, especially her best friend Easton like writes a musical about Pride and Prejudice and casts Mallory, our main character, as Mrs. Bennett. And I was like, ooh, what a burn. (laughs) Especially because later on in the book, you find out that her younger sisters both have literary names. They're named at her Yeah, Darcy, right. Yeah, and Sabrina, but hers is not literary. She's just like the weird one out. And so the only literary nickname we get for her is Mrs. Bennett. Yeah. Which then totally translates to like, oh, your sisters are finding you overbearing because you're acting like a parent. And you're not treating them as an equal or people who can like have their own wants and needs. And I was like, oh, like this is very good, like setting the scene both like in the overt text, but also the subtext. Yeah, no, there's a bunch of really thoughtful moments like that where things are clearly done with intention and parallels are made. And in a book like this, sometimes you fear that those parallels are going to be over explained or something like that. But um but I don't think they did it in this one. I think it was just like a mature YA romance novel. That weirdly has chess as an avatar for sex. <laughs> it's a very accurate metaphor. Like the, literally, the, it starts off with a section that's like called like openings. Yeah, yeah, right. And <laughs> I keep on going through the novel and being like, "Is Mallory a queen? Is she a king?" Because obviously, like Nolan is the king killer, right? And what does that mean? And she really hates the king. She's always talking about him being this like incompetent, move one space at a time. Nothing of a thing. Well, maybe we can explain this for people who don't know chess or don't know chess as well as we do. That, (laughs) right, like a king can only move like one space at a time in any direction. The queen is the masterpiece. Forwards, backwards, straight lines, diagonal lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The only thing she can't do is do whatever Whatever the horses do. Yeah, Yeah, the horses. Yeah. (laughs) And so I think there are a lot of parallels that you have with like Mallory and a queen. Mm Mm-hmm. Where she's protecting her family, but she's like not really engaging in actually the idea of protecting a king. Right. I mean, there's a good argument for her being the king, too, because she wants to just be at home playing the parent and not moving in any direction. Just like literally one space at a time. Like college would be moving many spaces at a time, but her taking a job at the mechanics down a block is, is a one space move. Exactly. And I feel like in Nolan's name being the king killer, you find out at the end, like, he paid for the scholarship to break her out of her bubble. Yeah, that's that's a cool idea, that she was the king, and he broke that identity of hers. Yeah, the way that I came to it was that she thinks of herself as the queen, but then she ultimately, like, is the king that needs to be, like, killed to a certain degree. Yeah, yeah, or the part of her that is a king needs to, needs to be killed. Yeah, so those are, like, their roles on the chessboard but how do we talk about how that relates to like sex (laughs) so i i have this suspicion that Allie hazel listens to our podcast (laughs) of course who doesn't right she's one of the hundred people that have listened to our it ends with us episode because there are at least three things that we have said on this podcast that appear at, at directly responded to in in the book one is the most obvious one where we were very critical of It Ends With Us and the way that It Ends With Us deals with charity and how it's just like this generic novel that's trying to appear to as many people as possible. And so there's no actual like 
stakes put in the ground. And so he's a good person because he gives to charity. And we were we made fun of that. We like spent quite a bit of time making fun of that. And then she responds to it. Allie Hazelwood responds to it in this book. When charity comes up, like this is a chess tournament for for charity, Mal is like, yeah, for what? Uh, to fund Woody Allen's new movie? <laughs> to like charity yeah, doesn't yeah. mean anything. So there's that. The other moments are there's a reference to. You Should See Me in a Crown, which is a book that we've covered on the podcast. And then finally, I don't know if we were critical of this, but it was something that alarmed us about... Actually, it might have even been in a Love Hypothesis episode where it was like, let me blank you oh, know, yeah. inside you. Like, all, all these other <laughs> things that were happening and how direct it was. And Sawyer basically reiterates that, but in a YA novel, he reiterates it as, let me play you in chess. Let me play you. And it's like the same tone of voice that... Mm-hmm. That sexy doctor man used in Love Hypothesis. <laughs> I will say, so one criticism we had about Love Hypothesis is that you didn't actually learn anything about the characters through sex. And this is like a complete inversion of that. Yeah. You learn everything about them in the way that they play. That's true. Exactly. Like, I thought this was a much more mature literary sex scene than we have seen from Allie Hazelwood in the past. Right. And by sex scene, you mean a game of chess. Yeah. <laughs> Because it was, like, really discussed, like, how their playing styles were their personalities and, like, the way that they were in combat with each other, but not in combat with each other, like, in flirtation with each other. Mm -hmm. So what we saw in Love Hypothesis is that there's, like, a virginal grad student and then, like, a sex fiend tenured professor. So the roles are very strict in both sides. Yeah, I... I loved it. I thought that was one of the best parts of this book for me was that representation of the like sort of asexual, demisexual, hot guy who really doesn't care that much about sex. And then the like really sex positive and neither of them are coded negatively, positively. Like they're both just like, that's the way that person is. They, this person doesn't care that much about sex. This one uses sex as a way to, you know, feel alive or whatever. But both those things were fine. Right. Nolan in sex was like very similar to how he plays, but slightly different that he did have insecurities. He doesn't have insecurities when he plays, but he is still like solid and he like knows what he wants and he knows where where he wants to go. He just like doesn't exactly know how to do it now. And he's and he's and he's so willing to be taught. And I think that is also like an interesting thing when you think about like gender um, and like who's the king and who's the queen. And like, does it really even matter? Like Mallory is pansexual and everyone's playing wherever they feel right on the chessboard, there isn't really like a gendered component of like playing really offensively or playing really conservatively, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. And this was a criticism that we had of the love hypothesis is you didn't learn anything about the characters and the like power dynamics weren't changed or it was sex for the sake of sex. It was, there was nothing that was coming out of there, like building up from it. And I think the opposite is true with these chess matches and the sex scenes. Um, because I think a large part of this book is about having an identity projected onto you or there's a bunch of the different parents in the novel. So like they push too hard or they don't push enough. Like Sawyer's parents didn't push him enough in chess and he like wanted, like they were holding him back for something. And But then there are grandparents push too hard or whatever. And so there's this like, what is the right amount of letting somebody figure out their own identity without being held back or pushed too hard or whatever um and the sex scenes i think were them like negotiating those power dynamics of her being very experienced and him not but him having a higher profile than her but there was like a a playfulness to that exchange like the sex was a negotiation yeah yeah, yeah. 
I will say when we first recorded the Love Hypothesis book, I did not realize it was Kylo Ren fan fiction. Right, right. That was a big miss on our part. But, but like, <laughs> I think that what was missing is I actually think this is much better Kylo Ren fan fiction. Oh, you got to tell me more about that. <laughs> I didn't catch it. Again, this is the second miss in a row for me. <laughs> Well, I think that like this is like Kylo Ray fan fiction in a much more well-written way. Like Kylo Ren's character, right, is that he originally is like the number one Jedi in like Luke's Jedi Academy, but he has so much potential to like be a bad boy. And so Luke tries to take him down for a brief moment. And that like sets Kylo Ren into like a completely new direction. Very similar to how Nolan's grandpa tried to stab him with a knife because of his dementia and then severed that relationship. But still, you have this legacy of like Jedi-ness. And then Ray slash Mallory is this like young upstart who hasn't had formal training, but somehow is like just as good at light lightsabering as Kylo Ren. And also like Kylo Ren... He might be played by M. Driver, but I don't think he fucks. And <laughs> Ray has all the boys and girls in love with her. <laughs> and she's just like, whatever. And I think what is striking to Kylo and to Nolan in this is like, oh, this is the first time I'm being properly challenged by someone who is not necessarily a mentor to me. And then also right, right. the third Star Wars trilogy is really about like lineage and legacy because you find out like, well, obviously like Kylo Ren is the child of Leia and Hans. Ray is the child of Palpatine. And so they both have to like combat with the missteps of the previous generations and make peace with it in order to like reach their own end game. Right, right. And that is that I think is part of the theme I was trying to articulate earlier is like a lot of this book is about decoupling what the world expects from you from what you actually want and like that is a really messy process like it is really hard to figure out like do i like this because i like this thing or do i like this because i'm supposed to like this thing because people expect me to like this thing and i think there's like a lot of ways in to that theme in this novel I, like obviously those two protagonists have that and, and kylo ray and and uh, <laughs> kylo, ray. kylo and ray <laughs> Have that, have that too. Yeah, and I feel like yeah. to that point, yeah. like up until the very end, they talk about how what they hate the most is losing and nothing feels as good as winning. But at the end, I think we find two things that are better than winning and it's like, one is sex and then the second thing is playing. Yeah, and like in both cases, we can lump them under like play. play. Right, where you're, the identity that you're holding on to as a winner or a, the player or the whatever you sort of let that go and you like enter that identity recreationally because it's fun because it's like engaging and that's why he just wants to play with her it doesn't matter if he wins the game or not i think the chess study that is cited in it is a real through line with this theme so in this study chess players play each other but they don't know the gender of the person that they're playing and men win 50 percent of the time women win 50 percent of the time and when they were told that they were playing against women, they still kept up that same win rate. But when they were told they were playing against men, even if they weren't, they would lose uh, a greater percentage of the games. And that is held up in the novel as sort of proof of this like social conditioning that happens where the style of the game changes or the, the way that they enter the game, their mindset is just different. And so that idea that like, that, a, that an identity is imposed on you by culture and that you're expected to meet certain obligations, expectations is a big part of this novel. Yeah. 
she does talk about it at the very end when they're like, oh, well, Mallory, how do you think that you got to like the world championships? Do you think you're better than any other woman? And she's like, no, I think that just like I was lucky not to be beaten down because I didn't ever play really competitively. Right. During a really formative stage when her brain was maximally plastic. And we can see this theme, I think, pop up with her family too, like her relationship with her sisters where she imposes the identity of little sister onto her sister and both of them chafe under that relationship where she thinks that she's supposed to be playing the father because she's responsible for the father leaving. And so she like adopts this identity, this like thing that's been imposed with that. It's self-imposed, but she like thinks that it is what is expected of her given what she did. And then the sister doesn't like that because she wants to like be in the play phase with her sister. She just wants to be sister, not little sister, not like ordered. Yeah. There is like this element of just like be your authentic self and be able to say the authentic thing. Like, her, her family knows the entire time that she's competing in chess. She's right, like, I've right. hidden it from them. They think I'm working with, like, elderly people. Yeah. Or, like, my best friend is having so much fun in college and she's not reaching out to exactly. me. Exactly. Exactly. That That's actually a really great example of this is that, like, she self-imposes an inferiority because she's like, well, I'm not as cool as Easton. Easton is probably at this party doing all these things. And then she becomes the one left behind. And, like, that's just the role that she ends up playing. And at the end, she has come around and she's like, well, if I want to talk to Easton, I'm just going to call Easton. I will make it happen. Like, I will choose the life rather than have a life imposed on me. Right. And I was wondering about this. Like, if that if that is the major growth point for our protagonist, this, like, understanding that even though she's supposed to like chess and she wants to chafe against that and not like chess... That really deep down she likes chess and like it's okay to like the thing that people expect you to like and like want to be a pro in in the thing that you're good at and like get joy from. Um, but for some reason she's playing the martyr and doesn't want to. So if that if that's her arc that she comes around to this and is like able to be her authentic self. I was thinking about the antagonist of this novel, the the cheater. Cock. How he might like represent all those bad things. That he wants to win the games because of the prestige. It doesn't seem like he enjoys chess the way that they do. He wants to win and so he'll cheat. And that's not really playing. So he wants to win more than he wants to play. And that is like a clear sign that he has not decoupled the social expectation or the social prestige from the authentic enjoyment. Like he doesn't actually inhabit the identity of chess player. Yeah, totally. There also is a a point, I think Mallory maybe brings it up, where she's like, her dad says there's two kinds of players. There's warriors and artists. Mm -hmm. And I think at different points, she can describe both herself and Nolan as artists. Right. And that, that I think, I mean, the way that we call code artists culturally is often as authentic as like they're, they're able to live their true selves and like are able to express themselves in ways that other people aren't able to. Yeah. Also, wait, did you hear about everything that was happening with the most recent cheating in the chess world? Dude, I thought that's where this was going. I also I told, thought. I was waiting for a butt plug. Yes. I was waiting for it. And I was like, it's Allie Hazelwood. You know, she gets freaky with it sometimes. And uh, I, <laughs> I think maybe we need to explain what this is so that our listeners <laughs> know what we're laughing about. So there was a guy who was like on the elite levels of chess recently who was found that he was cheating. And so as they mentioned in this book, we're at a point where computers can kind of outmaneuver humans with chess. And so the key thing is, how do you cheat then? You're not allowed to have like any watches or anything like on your body. In the book, 
her rival is able to cheat using a smartwatch that's been attached to his elbow, he wouldn't have gotten away with that. That's just like implausible. How this other guy cheated, which is amazing, it was with a Bluetooth butt plug that would like send him vibrations. Right. And he would somehow know like pawn to E3 or whatever. I know so much about chess. Like that is that is a commitment. That is the level of cheating I would expect. Yeah. Smartwatch on your elbow, please. No, and then getting out of the camera range to pick yeah. up the yeah. No, there was all sorts of things about that, which is why I thought the butt plug was coming. Yeah. Because I was like, how how is he cheating? Because it was yeah. very clear. I think early yeah. on, the way he's described as being, he's two different players. Somehow he just comes out with the best possible move, and you knew he was cheating. And we're just like, how is he cheating? And I was, Did this book come out before or after that scandal? <laughs> we could Google it. All right. Having just Googled this uh, to get the details on a scandal, it was that Hans Neiman apparently defeated Magnus Carlsen by using the aid of vibrating anal beads. But this was just like a conspiracy theory promoted by Elon Musk on X. And I can't tell from a few seconds of Googling whether this is actually true or not. But I don't want to slander anybody that wasn't using sex toys to cheat in chess. Yes. I feel like we should should avoid spreading fake news, but also acknowledge that... This was a popular scandal. It was a popular scandal. People were talking about it. Yes. I'm not in, you know, I'm not typically in chess discourse, but this made it into my bubble. Yes. And so, yeah, he he cares about winning. Yeah, right. He, He cares about the prestige of winning rather than, like, the authentic thing is to be an artist to play. The thing is both... Mal and Sawyer want to win, and winning is the most important thing to them. But they also love playing with each other because it's a beautiful game when they play with each other. But you got the sense that the German antagonist, he's never going to touch the artistry. He only wants to play chess for the prestige of playing chess. Like, basically, culture has said you're a smart person if you're good at chess, which is true, and that there's a certain level of prestige with getting the number to go up or getting the number to go down in terms of your ranking. And he is indebted to, or he's like heavily invested in that way of thinking. And Sawyer and and Mal simply aren't. Like they genuinely like the game. Yeah. And I think it's a very masculine, quote unquote, like traditionally masculine viewpoint. Right. I think, again, we see a lot of gender fluidity in like how Mallory and Nolan operate. But Koch handle big Koch on yeah. TikTok to be big yeah. cock on TikTok. He tells her to like stay in her women's leagues. Like it's very yes. much like winning in chess is this male masturbatory experience right. that like right. shows that I am a superior being. Right. And if if Mal and Sawyer are on this like journey to understand what they actually like in the world beyond what is expected of them, Koch is very far behind on that journey. Like he is still at the starting line. He's at the like base level gender essentialism and and that's a patriarchy hurts everybody kind of moment his life is definitely worse than theirs because he is like well being a man means this and so i do this being a smart person means playing chess and getting the number of my ranking to go down so i do that and i do it at all costs and it's the doing it at all costs that is like the he's never he's never actually going to find out what he is because he is heavily invested in what everybody else thinks a man is and what everybody else thinks a smart person or a chess player is. Totally. So 
to continue on this topic of the roles that people play and trying to, you know, figure out what you actually are, like the order of siblings is also a culturally constructed relationship. And so the oldest sibling is supposed to be a certain way. The middle sibling is supposed to be the one that, you know, builds the relationships and bridges the gaps. And then the, the younger one is the, the one that's got it made. We are both older children. The superior birth order. Yeah. Um, do you have any thoughts on this, like feeling like you need to accept the role of caretaker in certain situations? I literally wrote in my notes as I was reading this book, the third line is her sisters suck, all caps. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that there is like a the good moment at the end when she realizes a lot of the pressure she's putting on to be the parental father figure of the group like is all self-constructed and what her sisters really just want is a sister and not a father is like a poignant moment, which I feel like maybe is something I could relate to my own life. It is also really interesting. Like this was a way for the book to comment on how being a caretaker fundamentally changes a relationship. Like her being this caretaker for her sisters changes her relationship with her sisters. And then also when Sawyer moves to take care of her by getting her the scholarship and everything like that, like that fundamentally changed their relationship for the darkest hour of this book where she chafed under, like, you don't take care of me. I take care of other people. And she like even says at one point, like it's much easier to understand her relationship if, she, if she's the one who is needed rather than the one that is doing the needing. And so Sawyer's charity in those moments it changed the, her relationship with him in the same way that um, her relationship with her sisters had changed when she has to, like, take on this role. Right. There's another scene where Sawyer is, like, super duper sick. And she, like, completely takes care of him, makes him, like, a $43 soup. <laughs> and, like, she does so willingly because that is a role that she feels comfortable right. in. Yeah, and she likes feeling like she's needed. Yeah. How about you? How do you feel as an eldest? I don't know. Like, I guess, like, I can help everybody get ready when it's time to move houses or whatever. I don't know. I guess I felt it a little bit, but I did really didn't, like, pathologize it and make it my whole business. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're not just, like, a literary character <laughs> with a very clear... <laughs> on a 300-page on a journey yeah. <laughs> to authenticity. One thought that I was wondering when I was reading this book, because the back of the book says, a charming riot of a YA debut. So this is Allie Hazelwood's first YA book. But it wasn't honestly that much dissimilar from her other books. Just the protagonists were younger, but they weren't in high school. They'd already graduated. Right. And the sex scenes weren't explicit. Yes. There was like unbuttoning and then fade to black. Yeah, yeah. I did hear one of my students was saying, I heard... That check-in mate isn't really a YNA novel because there's some weird sex stuff in it. And I'm like, I don't think it was. We've seen weird sex stuff in Anna Hazelwood (laughs) books. This isn't isn't that. Well, I think that's my question is like what makes something a YA book? Right, because it's not the cover. The covers are exactly the same. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And usually I can tell the genre of a book by by the cover. And the love hypothesis was the first time I realized that this is simply not true. Or that maybe I just like thought that romance novels by definition had Fabio with his hair flowing on the cover. But I think to your student's point, I feel like what I would have said previous, like maybe 10 years ago, is the difference between YA and like adult romance is like the sex scenes. It would be the sex scenes and the characters actually are in high school. Like you see them go to classes. This book has, I would say like 
borderline sex scenes and they definitely aren't going to school. <laughs> like these characters could be 25 and it would not feel that different. Uh, agreed. Agreed. I think that with the love hypothesis, we were very critical of them like sitting on each other's oh, laps yeah. during academic conferences because we were like, this is what you do when you're 15 and you're in study hall and it's yeah. like a, a transgressive thing to do. This is just like absolutely absurd when you put it on a tenured professor and this one, one of my favorite scenes in it, and it wasn't like a particularly like literary scene or build up any theme as or anything like that, was the scene where just they're all friends hanging out in a room. They order pizza. They're eating it on the floor. Everybody's just like, it's like a true hangout where like some people leave, some people like, and it's just, there's nothing much going on. And I thought it like really captured the spirit of being that age in college of just having a place where there's nobody overseeing you, you just are hanging out, and if you get hungry, some peop- some faction goes and gets a pizza, and that's just like what it is. And that felt a lot more authentic for being twenty twenty one. If they were fifteen, it might have felt a little disconnected. Yeah. But also, if they were thirty, it, it like this is not a thing that happens to me anymore. Well, that's because we're sleeping by that time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. We, we still would have eaten the pizza, but we ate it much earlier. Right. Right. I am curious, do we think that we can have explicit sex scenes in YA and still consider it YA? Yes, but they need to be more awkward than in uh, Love Hypothesis. I don't know. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is like I'm, th- I'm thinking about the sex scene in The Fault in Our Stars that sometimes gets criticized where I think like that was really – it's a YA sex scene. Refresh my memory. I just remember them having sex in Amsterdam. It's it's like very awkward. It's like all it feels like a first time and that they're just like being there for each other. And I think the sex scene actually in a John Green book that gets even more talk is in Looking for Alaska. There's there's a sex scene and that gets that's the one that like gets banned in school libraries all the time. And that one is like it's a negative experience. Um, And he's not like coding sex as a negative experience. It's just like there was. Like, they were moving too fast, and, like, that was sort of the point of the scene. And so, I don't know. Like, if, I, if I'm going to, like, come up with a rule, it, YA novels by default are coming-of-age stories. Like, that is just what they are. And this one was clearly that. Like, it was a little bit different in that she had to come of age where she was, like, playing a father, and then she needs to, like, find out her authentic self and, like, move from innocence to experience in that kind of way of just, like, growing up and being on her own and leaving the house. Um and so it was a coming-of-age story. And I think that the sex scene needs to reflect that. Yeah. Because I like, I like the idea that it's like you want to like have teens be reading like sex-positive stories, which I think this book is. But I think to your point of like these good coming-of-age sex scenes, they feel realistic for teenagers. And I feel like the sex scenes in this book, like no one's never had sex before. He's never kissed anyone before. But she's like, yeah, it was clumsy, but it was amazing. I made amazing noises. He got such great feedback. (laughs) And I was like, I feel like that is like, that is not a young adult first time sex scene. That is a romance novel sex scene. And maybe that's what I'm reacting to. That's true. Like, again, yeah, if if we're going by the rule I just made up one second ago that you know, sex scenes have to tell you something about the relationship. They have to like contribute to the theme. And if in a coming of age novel, the theme is always coming of age and like finding an authentic self, move a move from innocence to experience, a move from solipsism to community or whatever. Like these are the themes of YA novels. Then the the sex scene has to 
participate in that or it's just like sex for the sake of sex. And I'm trying to come up with a good argument for this sex scene contributing to their search for themselves. And I think you can make it. It's just, I don't know if I'm the one to make it right now. Because <laughs> I think the whole point is she talks about how she uses sex for release and not for intimacy. And so like, it's her first time like having like intimacy put the partner. I think that that's actually where the right. scene could have pushed harder is like the release might not have been there, but the intimacy was there. Right. And that that might be it. Like if it's the move from her solipsism and being in her own head to her like being attentive to what somebody else needs in that moment, then this is a YA sex scene under my ad hoc rule. <laughs> I need a medium article or it's not real. <laughs> one one thing that frustrated me, I think, about this novel and the fact that it's marketed as a YA novel and it's supposed to be that journey to adulthood and authenticity and whatever is that she sort of steps into the chess world like yeah she was trained when she was seven or eight or whatever but she pretty much just steps into the to chess world and is good and these are people who have spent their lives working to be good and she's able to just like enter and compete at their level and typically especially in the 21st century like growth mindset and like showing that practice makes people better is is a big part of that YA experience and like learning that you can't just mess around and and show up and be the best player but she seems to do it obviously she does work and I think that Ali Hazelwood did go through some pains to show what preparation looks like and like show what meaningful preparation looks like but there was still in the back of my head like this is just playing into some prodigy mindsets that you can so long as you just like find the thing that you're good at and you're passionate about it, then everything's going to work out. And there was something a little frustrating about that. Yeah. I really liked the character of Oz, who was the her fellow chess teammate, who was just like, I hate prodigies. <laughs> like, I work so hard and I'm only like number 20. And I'm like an adult. Yeah. <laughs> this is also why I'm like, oh, this is definitely like the superior Star Wars fan fiction. Because it's like, oh my god, Rey just happens to be an amazing Jedi. And she just needs a little bit of training from Luke. And then she's ready to fight all yeah. the big bads. Yeah. She did try to lampshade it a little bit with the, oh, yeah. the reason she's able to do this is because she hasn't experienced sexism. But like, also, once we saw what a schedule looks like for chess, you not doing any chess for four years would not make up for these people who are literally studying for like 60 hours a week and they're all like weightlifting. Like, <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, you yeah, can't make, make up for that. You're studying moves and studying games and all this stuff. And she can just step in. I, th- I guess it is like a very like YA trope, but one that I I hope that we're like moving away from. Like the, the Harry Potter, Percy Jackson. I mean, I love Percy Jackson, but like this idea that like you're the chosen one and that's what makes you special is like something that you have that's innate versus like you are something that you put your mind to. Right. And can- the Hermione, if we just study hard enough, will be the best one. That, like, there is something, some level of work and practice that you can do to show up in the world and actually do the thing. Um, I really like the character of Oz as well. And this isn't a great transition thematically, but but one of the, the things I liked about Oz is his focus on the responsibility that she has. And, and that's part of her movement from solipsism to, to community, I think, is her like recognizing that she owed something to Daphne and that's like had to be part of the calculus that she was doing in her head 
as to whether or not she continues with chess or not, that there are people that showed up for her and she can't just abandon that thing. Like she's part of a community outside of her family of people that did things for her. She actually owes something. It's more complex than you would expect from a, a YA novel because a lot of what we've talked about so far is about finding one's authentic self and what you need outside of what the world expects from you. But this, that Oz moment that was so touching when he shows up at her house and is like, you owe Daphne is basically like, there are people to whom you do owe something. Yeah. You got to show up for them. Yeah. Even when you're not meaning to, and you're trying to live the most like isolated experience possible. Yeah. And that you can't actually become the best without other people. Even if you're the most talented person in the world, you can't do it by yourself. Right. Sawyer needs his fun friends. And he needs to be challenged by Mallory. Yep. Our conversation right now, thinking about like YA and like all of these sorts of different audiences makes me think of this IB question as we transition to IB. And so the one we have for today's podcast is a writer is always being asked, for whom do you write? Discuss the author's sense of his or her audience in this work. All right. I think that's uh, allowing us to talk about the way that YA has changed in our lifetimes, that it has become something that adults read like pretty pretty commonly maybe it was harry potter twilight twilight i think it was was john green (laughs) it was but there was something that happened in the early 2010s or maybe even slightly before where adults just started reading again and the thing that they were reading was ya novels and that audience has fundamentally changed what ya is right like ya previously did not have any even like this kind of sex scene where it's like oh there's unbuttoning of pants and we did things with our hands that don't require condoms i would have been scandalized if i had read that as a teenager yeah for sure but i think the attraction to ya as adults kind of makes sense where it's like one just general escapism i think there's also been a rise in like fantasy but also just like the authenticity of emotion and the primalness of emotion as a teenager and the stakes of it being a teenager. Right. It's hard to tell what the causal relationship is here, but it might be that authors realized that you can take that seriously. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like we all think about, oh, the emotions and crushes of a 16 year old are silly things, but like not if you're 16 and everybody remembers what it was like to be 16 and how this is like actually the the most important thing that's happening and you can't see beyond it and you have to live in it and that is really intense like i think everybody everybody still listens to the same music that they listened to when they were 16 it's just you don't care about things as much when you get older as you do when you're 16 and so i'm still listening to blink 182 ani defranco and alanis morissette i mean they had a lot of hits it's like still (laughs) in my in my spotify wrapped Oh, every year. I mean, I'm just lucky that Taylor Swift keeps on producing new music so I can stay in the zeitgeist. Yeah, yeah. so it doesn't seem like you're just not listening to Red over and over and over again. Exactly. The other things that are interesting about YA is like they're able to be more hopeful. Like it is an age when you can believe that you're going to be the number one chess player in the world and the number one bad boy in chess is going to fall in love with you. Yeah, right. It's not It's not interesting to have a novel centered around a 40-year-old like me because the number of things that I can be in this world are very limited like <laughs> hockey player chess champion like these these are off the table for me you can't have that same kind of <laughs> the world is your oyster <laughs> kind well, of narrative 
I think it's just the innate, it's like, I remember reading someplace, it's like, oh, one reason that we reincarnate is because like the time you're like 90s year old, you're burdened by so much. You've learned so much, you've experienced so much. And as like a young adult, even like one who like obviously has her ups and downs like Mallory does in this, and she has a lot of responsibility. There is still like an endless sea in front of her where she hasn't experienced as much downturns or like trying something really hard and then failing for years. Yeah. So I think that the new audience for YA novels where adults are reading them, I think that authors are 100% aware of that. And so the, well, one, the amount of sex that they could put in, I, that might be just because there's more exposure to sex at a younger age. And so to ignore that fact is going to seem overly wholesome at this point. But I think that the narrative arcs that the characters have are a little more nuanced. They're not as simple as, oh, and now I realize I'm not the only person in the world and I can care about people, right? Like a lot of YA novels from my youth is simply somebody learning that that other people exist and that they have emotions and you shouldn't hurt people like that. That's sort of the narrative arc of YA when I was a kid. And now it's like, no, Mallory is actually trying to be a part of her family. She like is actively taking responsibility for her family, but there's another level of community that she is ignoring because she's being self-obsessed and narcissistic about what her role needs to be. And that's a lot more interesting. It's like a much more adult conversation um, but there's no reason that, you know, 15-year-old readers can't participate in that. Like, it, it still makes sense. I think that the inclusion of adults as an audience has shifted it, and I think shifted it for the better. I think there also is this feeling, of, at least for millennials, where it's like, Gen Z is going to save the world. And reading this book is a feeling that I have. Like, both of Allie Hazelwood's books are from a female perspective about women who are in a male-dominated workplace. And they're able to, like, get to the top of their class and they're able to take down the sexist idiot on the way and that to me is like it can't happen for me my generation screwed but this future generation i want to believe that this is true that they're just entering these male-dominated worlds and like getting rid of the sexism yeah and right like changing the stories like that's the way to change cultures to change the stories that that the culture has and hold sacred and so just keep on pumping these out and maybe maybe it'll happen right and maybe that is like get get to the kids early like, I think, like, we're reading this as adults, and we're like, oh, I bet a bunch of adults re are reading this, which is true. But I think youths are reading this, too. And this is, like, a good, yeah. like, Barbie-level I mean, feminism to read. I have it up in my room that I read it on my Books I Read poster, and people are always like, oh, you read that? I've been thinking about reading it, or, or you know, it's in the zeitgeist. The, the high schoolers are reading it. She's very popular. Even her romance novels are very popular among high school students, because they're popular on TikTok. Um, I think we did it. I think we had a really good discussion. It was a good book. It was fun. Yeah. Now we got to think about what we're reading next. One thing I've been thinking a lot about is honestly us discussing Britney Spears last month and Justin Timberlake having a new single coming out called Selfish, which is like on the nose. Is he calling Britney selfish or is he reflecting on his own selfishness? He's reflecting on his own selfishness, but in uh, okay. a, well, no, 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 but like not in a self-aware zeitgeisty way. He's like, Am I selfish if I want no other man to have you? Yes. And the answer <laughs> yes. is yes, you are. <laughs> but if we were able to go into like sort of that zone. Then I think the novel is Once More with Feeling, which seems like a fictionalization of Brittany and Justin from what I can tell. 
I hope it means that they don't end up together and that she lives her best life. But I do also like that there's cats on the cover. All right. Once more with Feeling by Alyssa. Let's do it. Literary Connections is hosted by me, Melissa Hansen, and James Earl, and was produced by Kimberly Johnson. You can follow us on Twitter or X at lit underscore connections. Join us next month when we'll be reading Once More with Feeling by Alyssa Sussman. See you then. I would also like an excuse to re-engage with Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I watched it on Hulu most recently, and I think the biggest difference when you watch it as an adult is you're like, holy shit, was Giles hot the whole time? (laughs) You watch it. You tell me if you have the same realization. (laughs)